Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you go down, it gives you, I want you to go do this website on your own. It's called the globalrichlist.com. Okay. When you type in $36,000 as your, uh, income for the year, and that's not counting any other type of money that you might bring in or anything like that, what you will see is that you are like, you are in the top, top tier in the entire world. Okay. You're at the cream of the crop. And that is a very important thing to understand because we are often fed this line in the news. We're always talking in America about who when it comes to taxes and stuff. Who doesn't pay enough and who needs to pay more? The one percenters, right? Because they, they have it all and we have none, right? Like us common folk. We, have, we don't have anything, right? Let's, let's go back to the uh, keynote. We'll put that back up there. We're going to talk today, we're going to come at this from a different angle. We're going to talk about the corners of your fields. How many of you have any farming background whatsoever? Good, a few of you, okay? Um, The corners of your fields. Last week we talked about the principle of first fruits, and the whole question there was, who does everything really belong to? All the stuff in your life, who does it really belong to? And who is the giver of all good things? Who really provides all the stuff that we have? Is it really mine? Is it really my stuff? And, and do we often think that it is? Or does it belong to God? And am I really going to live by this principle of first fruits this holiday season and throughout 2020? And yeah, I made, I made, I had no qualms about like Black Friday's right around the corner and we're talking about money. Like I do this every year if you've been around for a while. Um, the deal is, is I want to see who I'm going to be next year. And I want to see who I'm going to be the year after that and the year after that. And am I going to be a more generous person or not? And what is God going to do in my life if I honor this principle of first fruits, you know? And so today as we dive into this, uh, the idea of corners in our fields, we're going to tackle this idea. Scarcity, like I don't have anything. Like I'm not one of the one percenters, Right? There's these guys at the top, these people at the top who have everything and I have nothing. And and there's all these things that I want that I'm never going to have. Or is it abundance? Like I I have everything at my fingertips. I have everything and more than I've ever wanted. And and it's this dichotomy between these two things. Now let's go back to scarcity for a minute. Put that back up on the screen. Uh, Why are we talking about this? Because how we view God, how you view God, has to do with these two things, scarcity and abundance. A good question that we can all ask is, how do I view God personally? Do, is he a God of abundance for me? Or is he a God of scarcity? Let's look at the definitions. So scarcity, and I love, you know how you get in the, in the Webster's Dictionary and you see how they give you the little phonetic pronunciation and they spell it out and then they give you like how to break up the, the, the syllables here. So I did the syllable break up for you. And I think it's funny because it's scarcity is scarcity. <laughs> it's scarcity. And then they give you the pronunciation, but it's the state of being scarce or in short supply. Synonyms would be shortage, dearth, lack, want, undersupply, insufficiency, scantness, meagerness, or poverty. That's scarcity. The question is, is that your God? Is your God a, a God of scarcity? 
Or how about abundance? Let's go to the, the next definition, Ava. Uh, this one's a little bit more funny when they break it up by syllable, right? It's abundance. <laughs> Which my, don't tell my kids that. They will not let it go. Okay. Um, abundance, right? It's even fun how to say it, right? But the definition is a very large, a very large quantity of something. So I want to ask you this question. If you, if you bought into the principle that we talked about last week, the principle of first fruits, if you bought into that, do you actually believe that that's just about your money? Or is it more than that, what we talked about last week? And if you didn't hear that or you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it on the website. Um, the, next, the next question is, when we're talking about scarcity and abundance, is do you believe, and this is the very integral question for today, do you believe that you have enough? Do you believe that God has given you enough? Right? And the way to get to the answer about that in your life is all wrapped up in your actions and in my actions. Do you, if you want to answer yes, I do believe that, then do you act like that? Do, do you act like God has given you enough? Or do you view God through the lens of scarcity? And you're looking here at yourself and what you have, and you're, you're keeping everything close to your chest right here because you believe that it, I'm not going to have enough, so I have to keep it. Or do you believe that your God is overflowing with abundance and he's going to give you stuff and you can give it away and he's going to give you more stuff and you can give it away. Yeah, your hands might be empty, but they're open and he can put some stuff in them versus I, my hands are tight and they're closed and I'm tight-fisted and I'm a Scrooge, you know, to give you a little foreshadowing to our Christmas Eve when we have Charles Dickinson's Dickens's, how do you say that? A Christmas carol that we're going to be doing here. But are you Scrooge? When I think about these two things, scarcity and abundance, it's about a matter of perspective, right? So back when Beth and I were living in Idaho, everybody was like, man, I just wish I had a three-car garage. And here you're like, I just wish I had a parking space, <laughs> right? Uh, it's this mentality of scarcity. Um, I literally went to a meeting to meet another pastor in Ballard, and the place where we were meeting, I had to park nine blocks away. Nine blocks. And then he was like, hey, I'll walk you back to your car. How, you know, I'm, we walked past his car. He got a spot right in front of the place. And I drove by first, and it wasn't there. Anyway, it's like, what are you going to give me, God? I can't find my parking space, you know. He walks back, and then about halfway, he's like, are we here? And I'm like, no, it's like four more blocks. And he's like, okay, I'm going to cut out. And he walked back, and he left me, you know. So abundance has to do with with a lot more than what do I have do do we understand the fact that when we looked at that global rich list the rest of the world if you average out everyone's salaries okay the whole world lives the average it lives on $833 a month the entire planet okay the average is $833 a month so $10,000, basically $10,000 per year is what the average household income is around the world. If you, took, if, you, that, if you took North America and Europe out of that, the number would be even smaller, right? Because we bring that number up, right? So 
depending on the stats you're looking at, and stat, you know, everybody's like stats, yeah, you can throw stats at me all day, but depending on the stats you're looking at, the average income for a household in America is between 48000 and 55000 a year, on average. Okay, and there's people that are way up at the top that are bringing that up, and people at the bottom that are bringing that down, and everything in between. But, so most, what I'm trying to get you to look at is the perspective here. Most folks in the world might think, simply because we're born here in America, or that you were able to move here to America, that we live in a land of abundance, right? Do we live in a land of abundance? Yeah. But oftentimes we are blinded to that fact. We think about what we don't have. We think about what we haven't received. There's one thing more on our list all the time, and there's countless websites that like inventory all the gear and the stuff that we don't have yet, and they get you addicted to coming back and looking at them so that you're like, I don't have that yet. That's the next thing I want. I don't have that yet. That's the next thing I want, or that experience, or that trip, or that place you haven't been to. And that's why you keep looking at Instagram, and people are putting these things on there. I do it too. And you're like, man, I haven't been there yet. I haven't been there yet. Confession time. Like, I even, when I see those things on Instagram, some of them, I'm like, where is that? And I click the location, and I take a screenshot, and I'm like, I put it in a folder that says, I want to go there someday. And that's not bad in and of itself, but it's like, how much are you, is it scarcity or abundance? Right? So the text we're going to dive into here, a couple texts today, the first one is Leviticus. So yeah, Leviticus, yay, again. We're going to jump into Leviticus, uh, chapter 19, verse 9. I'll put it up on the screen, but if you have your uh, device or your Bible, open those up. And... Um, Read along, and here's what it says. This is going to help us get into this idea a little bit more. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Wouldn't it be funny if just a couple books later, God thought this was important enough to put it in again. We did. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 22. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Now, by a show of hands that I took earlier, most of us don't have fields, right, that we're harvesting. Um, most of us aren't farmers anymore, and we have a big disconnect from that world. And again, this is an ancient civilization and we're going to go back even further. We're going to look at another story as well. But um, how does this work in, our, in, in my life? Like if you're a nurse or you're a student or you're retired or you're a real, real estate agent or you work at Amazon or Microsoft or wherever, um, here's the question. How do you leave the corner of your fields? Right? Because the operating question is, what did the original author mean by this, and how did the original hearers hear this? That's where we're coming from all the time. So how do you leave the corners of your fields? We have to understand what they're talking about in order for us to 
put that in the right context for us because I'm not a farmer and I don't own a field. How do we do that? How do you leave the corner of your cubicle <laughs> at work? And what, what's that really saying there? Is it really saying that? And why would you do this in the first place? What does it look like? Uh, what does that look like as a pastor? All right, so, you know, it's kind of interesting. I would consider myself a pretty generous guy. And it's easy for me to track the checkbook. And I go, okay, so like the whole tithe, the 10% thing. Yeah, that's easy. But then there's all these ways that God wants to point out to me how I'm not generous. And there's a lot of them, unfortunately for me. Uh, for example, I'm sitting in the office and somebody rings the, the ring video doorbell and it's a homeless person and they've come to the door for help. And what do I do? I'm like, ah, I'm in the middle of something. I'm doing something. I'm trying to get something done that's important. Right? It's so inconvenient for me. And when that kind of thing happens, I do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm ticked because it took up my time. And then later I'm ticked because I got ticked about it and I'm mad at myself, right? Like we do. And I go home and I'm like, why? And I'm dealing with that. And then I might do something stupider, like take it out on my kids and be extra grumpy with them because I'm really mad at myself. And then I'm ticked about that. And it just keeps going. So I, you know... That's not a life of generosity. And here I am thinking I'm a generous guy because I'm the pastor and I got the tithe thing down or whatever. But God comes along and says, okay, Captain Generous, how about being generous with that? How about being generous with that? You got your finance thing figured out. Fine, that's good. But where's your heart on this? Is it in the right place? How about your time? Where does your treasure lie? And so I think about that and we look at the text. Why would he tell us to leave our corners uncut. The first one in Leviticus, he tells us right there, why does he tell us to do it? Because I am the Lord, your God. It's kind of like saying, because I'm your dad. Why, dad? Because I'm your dad. Right? And we always think that's an insufficient answer when it comes to our own kids. Your kid's asking you, why? Why do I have to do that? And you're like, because I'm your dad, do it. <laughs> you know, but this is God saying, you need to do this. Leave the corners of your fields cut. And this isn't like clean up your room. This is for a different reason, and we're going to get into that in a minute. It's right there in the text. He's the Lord your God. He wants you, when he says that, he wants us to remember him. It's the first fruit. Thank you. Everything I have belongs to you. Thank you. Thank you. He's the Lord your God. Why are we generous? Why is he calling us to generosity? Maybe because our God is more generous than we could possibly imagine. He has rescued us. So sandwiched right there in the second text that says, the Lord your God will bless you in all the works of your hands. When you're generous, it's weird. It's just weird. And this is not health and wealth. Like, if I do this, you're going to be blessed and become a millionaire or whatever. And then, meanwhile, the charlatan preacher up there is like driving uh, you know, a Lamborghini and he's got five mansions. Uh, by the way, a really prominent preacher in that, in that realm recently said, he's been doing this for years, that kind of thing, and he basically said, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You never hear that. And you're like, wow, and I hope he lives up to it. And I hope he does, takes action to like, make it right. I hope he pulls like what I affectionately like to call Zacchaeus. 
and gives all of his stuff back, you know. But it's really weird when you try to give away your finances. It's like, and, and I, it's, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know how this was going to work out. I just knew what I believed, and I'm like, we have to take action on this a few years ago. We came to you and we said, we're in debt for this building prior to my coming here, like 200 some odd thousand dollars, right? And I'm like, we got to do this. And we, I told our treasurer, we need to reverse engineer the, how to pay this thing off in short order so that we can get down to ministry instead of paying for a space, right? And I, and, and I said, how many of you think you could do that? And everybody went, yes. There were like 45 of you in the room. And you're like, yeah, we could do this. Not knowing, but we're like, we're going to step out in faith and do this. And I said, well, the first step we're going to do is we're going to up our giving from whatever percent it was before to at least 10%. Our treasurer said, well, that's a really odd number. I don't like that number. And, and it, it, I was like, okay, dial it up to 11. <laughs> we dialed it up to 11, and a month and a half later, an anonymous donor paid off our debt. You just put your money, like, and the, the premise was, how can we as church leaders stand up and go, hey, you need to tithe. You need to. It's between you and God. But how could we ever preach that message if we're not living it, right? By the way, we upped it to 15% last year, and this year we upped it to 16%. That flows right out of here. Comes in, goes out. Comes in, goes out. How... It's like you're a conduit that God wants to work through. He, he can work through someone like this. It's a lot harder to work through someone who's like this. Right? So he asks us to remember where we came from. Remember your story. Remember that you were slaves. Remember that I have rescued you. Right? Generosity looks different for all of us on different levels because we're all in different places. But God will continue to reveal in my life and in your life where maybe generosity is not complete, all right? And we have put, like if you go to our website and you look at our values, they're very simple. We want to live like Jesus. We want to do this together for the sake of others with generosity, right? Maybe there's no end date for generosity. It just keeps getting deeper and wider for us as a church and as individuals. Because I learned that a long time ago, that God is never, he's never done with me. He doesn't leave me alone. He keeps messing with me. And there's always something more. And learning about generosity just keeps getting bigger and wider and deeper. Now, let's flip over a few books to Ruth. We're going to look at the, the story of Ruth because there's, there's these commands that God gives in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to leave the corners of your fields. And then Ruth, it's like, ah, oh, I wish I could see that illustrated. And God's like, here you go. Here's Ruth. <laughs> Where this story actually of leaving the corners of your fields actually plays out. So, Think about Ruth. She is Naomi. I'll give you a little background here. She is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Okay? So there's this lady, Naomi, who had a husband, and they had some sons, two sons, the text tells us. The two sons got married. One of the, one of the girls is Ruth. One of the wives is Ruth. The other one is Orpah, not Oprah. Okay? Orpah. Okay? They, and, they, what happens is, is they, they all move to another, another land, Moab, and then Naomi's husband dies. And then, in about 10 years, both of her sons die. So it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law that are there. They're in Moab, okay? And so Naomi is devastated, and she's trying to figure out what to do with her daughters-in-law, and she urges them to leave, and she says, I'm going to go back, I'm going to leave Moab, and I'm going to go back 
to my, my people, the Hebrew people. And I want, we're going to pick it up here in verse 16. By the way, when I write FF, that's the, like, the theologically all correct term for and following. Ruth 1, verse 16, and following. I'm just going to keep going, okay? So, but Ruth replied. So she's just said, Naomi's just said, get lost. I can't take care of you. You're on your own. And Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, the women of the town exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And she's like, hey, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Why call me Naomi? And I was thinking about that because as far as events that go on in the world, there are a lot of bad things. You just pick up the newspaper, you, you open up, you turn on the TV, you open up your app for the news or whatever, and it's like, okay, here's all this bad news. Here's all these bad things that are going on, shootings and wars and famines and dictators and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's very bitter. And if you brought it more close to home, if I, if I lost, if you lost your spouse or your significant other or your kids, or if I lost my wife or my kids, I would be bitter. And none of you would be, none of you would blame me for being bitter. You would not. You wouldn't blame me. But I think about Naomi, and she says, God made me bitter. Did God make her bitter? Didn't God love Naomi? Doesn't God love the people who've gone through tragedy after tragedy after tragedy tragedy in this country and around the world? Does he not love them? And like I said, it's abundance or scarcity and who you believe your God is and what, he, what kind of God is he. Some people blame God for tragedy, and I get that. Uh, I'm not, none of us should dismiss that. I get it, right? I've been at the deathbed of some people in here, in this congregation, before they passed. And they were talking about, some of them were talking about the pain and everything that they had been through. And they were like, I don't know why God has given this to me. And it's very hard and I just want it to go away. Meanwhile, I've been with other people in this congregation. Their bodies are crippled and Uh, maimed and not working right, and they're the most joyful people I've ever met. Is your God a God of abundance or scarcity? And it is a matter of perspective, right? We want to blame God for every tragedy, what he did or didn't do. But everything that's good in my life, if things go good in my life, you're not, the thing is, is we're not, I'm not like, okay, God, you did that for me. And I'm learning, that's what I mean by learning about what generosity is, because each year I want to get better at that. I want to learn more and more about, like, God, you did that. I had nothing to do with that. That raise I got, that job I got, that was you. Everybody who goes through something hard seems to ask, why, God, are you doing this to me, or why are you allowing me to go through this? And that's what Naomi does here. It's this mentality scarcity. So verse 22 It says, so Naomi Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem, 
which it's almost Christmas time, so that should like send your antennas up here, okay? Bethlehem. As the barley harvest was beginning. Fast forward to Ruth chapter 2, verse 6 and following. Ruth uh, is going out to gleaning in these fields and she's picking up the leftovers. And Boaz, this is the background of this, Boaz is like, who is this lady who's picking up the leftovers? And he's got an overseer over all of his workers in the fields. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field uh, where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So this text does not say that Boaz was a super wealthy man or anything like that, but what are you noticing about Boaz right now and his interaction with her? His hands are open. He's like, I I welcome you. I'm going to take care of you a little bit here. She's a foreigner. What did the text say? Don't glean the, the corners of your fields for the fatherless and the foreigner and the widow. And she, she is a widow and she's a foreigner. And he's like, okay, I'm going to put this into, into practice. I would submit this to you. It's almost like, let's put this up on the screen, when you have an abundant view of who your God is, and your eyes are up, and you're noticing things, and you're noticing opportunities around you for how you can find those corners in your fields to help somebody. When you have a scarcity view of all your stuff and what you have or don't have, maybe you miss some things because you're holding on to that. You think it's a lot, and God's going, if you just let it go, I could give you so much more. You know, you're holding on to the little that you have. Boaz then says to her, look, I've been told about what you've done for Naomi, your mother-in-law. And he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done for her and you, under, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You're taking refuge under my God. What would we say that Ruth has been doing? She's, she is, it's, the text says, she's out there in the field to help her mom, her mother-in-law. She's like, I need to take care of her. She can't do it, so I'm going to come out here and do this, and, I, and I'm going to be generous towards her. And her generosity gets her noticed. It gets her noticed. Did you know that our church gets noticed by its generosity all the time? Because I'm out in the community quite a bit. I meet with a lot of different entrepreneurs in our little village here, and I'm on the board for the West Seattle Junction, so I meet with these business owners, and they're like, oh yeah, we've heard about what you guys are doing with West Seattle Helpline. Oh yeah, we've known for years that you've been supporting all of these different community events that are really good for our community. I've heard about you guys, you're pretty active in the community. We are known for being generous, we are known for being a church who views God as a God of abundance, and that we're, we're here to be here for the foreigner and the orphan and the widow. I mean, when we said, when, when the first thing we did, the first thing we did after we raised our giving to 11% outside and then that, that loan was paid off, the very first thing we did was set up 
a fund called our Compassion Fund. And we put $10,000 in it. And it's always been going up and going down because we're always giving it away to people in this room and people outside, this, outside the walls of this church. Because that's, that's our corner. We, we have, we've gleaned our corners and we're like, that's the very first thing we need to do. There's story after story, and I hear these stories about, oh, I know you because I met so-and-so who was serving over here. I met so-and-so who was down at this thing and was there helping out. Out of a mindset of abundance. If you go back to what he says in verse 13, Boaz says, she says to Boaz, may I continue to find favor in your eyes. And at mealtime, Boaz said, come over here. And when she sat down, he basically said, you know, I want you to eat here with me. And he didn't, he doesn't rebuke her. I look at Boaz and I ask, why is he like this? Why is he doing this? Does he view God as a God of scarcity or a God of abundance? I'm looking at all this this week, and, I, and every week I pray about all of you and how we're going to interact with this text and what it's going to do in our hearts so that we can like walk it out, and work it out in tangible ways. But I, I really, this is what I basically heard. I firmly believe with all my heart this next week that God is going to put people in your path that he wants you to notice. He's going to put people in your path that he wants you to notice. You're supposed to take notice of them. Here's the thing. You cannot take notice of people in your path that God puts there if you're like this. Fine. You can't do that. But if you're like this, and you're like, what do you got? So I can give it. What do you got? You're going to stand up and you're going to, your head's going to be high and you're going to start to notice. There's, here's the other really important thing to realize. If you're noticing others and their needs, and you have these opportunities to be generous, but you have, you're like, you're just starting to get that, but you realize that you've gleaned all of your corners and you've reaped all of your resources for yourself already. You, you've taken your fields and you haven't left the corners, both in time that you have to help others and in money that you may have had to help others then how can you lean into those opportunities? And the opportunities are there. The text says, why? Because I am the Lord your God. And why? Because I want you to remember your story, that I saved you, that I've rescued you. Remember who you really are. You've been a rescued people, and I'm calling you to rescue others on my behalf. And one way you do that is that you create this margin in your life in time and money. And the whole time thing is a whole other sermon. Like One thing me and my wife notice all the time with our kids and all the activities that we're involved in is that balancing act of you have to pull back enough so that if some opportunity arises for you to be with the person that needs you to be with them, to be Jesus with them, to love on them, to be involved in their life, you have, you have to have it, you, you actually have to plan this out is what God is saying. Like leave the corners of your fields so you have that margin. Not just the time, but also the money, the finance, the everything. <laughs> then you can lean into those opportunities. So you can remember who God is and what he's done for you. And then you remember who you are and who you're called to be. But if you don't leave the corners, what then? If you don't leave them, what then? 
There's no margin in your life for anything. So you fast forward through the story. She goes and lays at his feet, which is a great sermon that I'm not going to get into right now. And Boaz goes to the elders because he knows he's not in line to take care of, her, of uh, Naomi's family. Okay? And Ruth. And so there's another person who's known as the kinsman redeemer who is the first in line in the extended family who's supposed to redeem. He's supposed to have the responsibility to redeem Naomi and her family and, and take care of that family and preserve the family line. And he's supposed to do that by purchasing the field from Naomi. And when he does that, Naomi comes, becomes part of the family and any relatives in her family then become part of the family too. Right? And so Boaz does the right thing. And the other guy is obviously not doing the right thing because he has to go to the kinsman redeemer and say, hey, did you know that Naomi is now selling her field and that you as the kinsman redeemer have first right to be like, I'm going to do what God has prescribed for us to do in this ancient Near Eastern culture and take care of her? And he's like, and so he goes to him and says, hey, do you want her fields? He's like, heck yeah, I want her fields. You know, I want... I want all that for myself. And he's like, okay, so just so you remember, when you take the fields, you also get Naomi and Ruth and all the stuff that comes with that. And this guy literally says, in verse 6, the guardian redeemer says, then I cannot redeem it. Why? The next line is, because it might endanger what I have. What I have. It might endanger what I have that I've worked for. If I take this on, it's too risky. It's going to mess everything up. You redeem it yourself, he says. I cannot do it. And so Boaz stands up with all the leaders and the, everybody in the, in the tribe and the village, and he goes, yeah, you heard him say it, and I'm claiming now that I will do it. Okay? Translation for that verse, if I help or if I try to help, it might put me and my stuff and my own and my stuff and me and mine, me, 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 might put it all at risk if I help. You redeem it. And Boaz says, sounds good, I'll take care of that. I got it. And he redeems Ruth and he takes her as his wife. And there's all kinds of other things in there. But the point is that Boaz, he noticed, he noticed what was going on And he had a bigger, more abundant view of things. His heart is in the right place. By the way, Boaz and Ruth, they're in this one family, kind of an important family. They're like the great-grandparents of King David, who is also in the lineage of who? Jesus, right? I love this quote by Bob Goff. Uh, don't save up love like you're trying to retire on it. Give it away like you're made of it. I just, I would love to see some Hollywood actors like all say this line. Like Stallone could say it. Could you imagine? Don't save up like love, trying to retire on it. Give it away like you're made of it, you know. <laughs> Adrian. <laughs> oh, Adrian, hey. <laughs> you're in the back. Um, Don't save up love like you're trying to retire on it. Give it away like you're made of it. Because that's what we're really talking about here. Your money, your stuff, your everything, this whole life that God's trying to call us into and be part of this bigger, wider, deeper world. Some of you are still smiling and sniggering at me. Like, 
Stop it. <laughs> um, this whole life is about loving the way Jesus has loved us. We, he redefines that golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself, right, is what everybody was saying back in his day. And he goes, no, I want you to love your neighbor the way I've loved you. And the way I loved you was with everything. And I didn't save it up. And I gave it all away because it's what I've made of. And all this stuff, we get all like awkward when it comes to this money and stuff talk every year. And it's like, no, this is the talk about love. What do you love? Who do you love? How do you share this love of Jesus that's in your heart? That's what I want you to chew on. Where does this idea of scarcity and abundance fall for you? What does it mean to live a life of abundance? Are you going to live a life with open arms and palms up? Right? So you can give things away and pass them on to others. There it goes. It's okay. I, something else is coming. Do you share your home? Do you share your cars? Do you share your stuff? Is it yours or is it God's? In Matthew, Jesus speaks directly to this. Matthew 6.25. You guys all know it. I'm pretty sure if you've been a Christian for like five minutes. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about it. How much more will he clothe us than the flowers of the field or the birds of the air and take care of them? For the pagans run after these things. He, Jesus knows. God knows that you need these things is what that verse says. And Jesus says, don't worry. God's got you. He's got you. Has he got you? Does he give you enough? Are your hands open to receive or are they clenched tightly holding on to what you think is yours? And there's no, when you do that, there's no room for him to put anything in your hands. He knows what you need. Don't you believe it? So just go, okay, okay. So when we talk about abundance and scarcity and tithing and corners and gleaning and first fruits and money and all that stuff, it's all about how you view God and how much he loves you. And are you going to put your love for him into action? Do you believe that God's given you enough? Do you live your life with open hands? What if all of us actually had the mindset of abundance? What if we all did that? What if you saw a need and you filled it over and over again? And we have people living like that right here in this room. Not all of us, and some of us are like, we're doing it in like fits and starts, you know? But we're starting to do it more and more. The person who lives life with abundance, I've found, is contagious. I want to live like that. I want to live like that. Abundance is contagious. If you want to tell a story of how our God really is, then you can do it by how you view the corners of your fields. Is it abundance or is it scarcity? Is he taking it away from me? Or is he saying, there's so much more if you just do this. There's so much more you can step into. The question is, which type of God do you want to serve? And if you do want to serve him, how would anybody know? How would anybody know? It's not up here. It's by what you do. So we're going to come to our time of communion. And this, I, I hope this ties in nicely with this. But a little bit of instruction if you're new with us. We, uh, the band's going to come and play. And um, 
We set this side of time because this is Jesus' table and he invites all of us to come. And if you're a believer, we'd like you to come and participate in this with us. Jesus invites you to his table. And we take the bread and we dip it in the juice and, and uh, there's gluten-free if you need that. You can come up the middle aisles and dip or you can go to the side tables and then go return to your seat and take, and take the bread with you. Dip it in the juice and take it back to your seat. And then when we've all had time to pray, um, then I will, I will pray at the end and instruct you to partake together. Um, I want to share a story with you about this. There's a story, and I, I was used to make fun of certain preachers that took their stories from the Reader's Digest, but this one was just too good. <laughs> so, um, story about a lady named Brenda Jones, 69-year-old great-grandmother, and she'd spent a long year on the waiting list, waiting to receive a liver. And then uh, in July, a hospital in North Texas called, and they said, we have a viable liver for you that we can do this transplant. And meanwhile, there was another lady, so you have 69-year-old Brenda Jones, and you have another lady, 23-year-old Abigail Flores, who also needed a liver. And her situation was much more urgent than Brenda's without a transplant really quickly, uh, the younger gal, Abigail, um, she maybe had more, like one more day to live, as the story goes. So they asked Jones, they asked Brenda, would she, she was next in line to get the liver, and they said, will you give up? Will you give up your spot on the list? You're next in line, we realize that, and that's the way it works, but will you give up your spot so that Abigail can get this liver. And Jones agreed, and this is what she said, in my heart, in my heart, I wouldn't have been able to live with the liver if I had let this little girl die. I will live if I get this liver, but I will not be able to live with myself if I let this little girl die. And so she gave the liver to Abigail and Brenda Jones, was put, she was placed right back at the top of the donor list, and she got her liver a few days later. Right? Right? This is what it means to live with abundance when you come to this table to believe that God has laid this out for you, that he's got you, that he's got you, that when you live from that place of trust and you, and you leave the corners, you don't reap them, you leave them for others, you leave margin in your life, which makes love tangible. God uses you as a conduit and he will honor that. And that kind of living with generosity is without a doubt what we recognize and remember when we come to this table, this same table Jesus came to with his disciples on the night that, that he was betrayed, when, they, when he was crucified and gave his life as a ransom for us, he left the corners of his field for us and so much more so that we could enjoy a harvest. Amen?